Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. for having me here. Okay, so on its own, this was a pretty confusing and heavy story from the Old Testament, right? And I'm going to be talking about some pretty confusing and heavy stuff today. So I'll give some context for where this story comes from and why we're talking about it today. But before that I do that, I want to invite everyone here to tune into your bodies in whatever way feels grounding. Remember that we are surrounded by a loving community of people who want the best for us. I'm going to be touching on topics of war, genocide, intergenerational trauma, and grief today. And some of this will be hard to hear, but I'm going to do my best to bring it all together in a way that grounds us in the power of community and prayer and our abilities, our body's abilities to heal and hold one another. having trouble placing myself here. (laughs) Um, Okay, to place myself here on this stage for a moment, um, again, my name is Aiden. I use they, them pronouns, uh, and I've been a part of New City for about five years now, Uh, but this is my first time getting up here to preach a sermon. Um, Thank you. I'm not really one to get up in front of a crowd and public speaking kind of terrifies me, Um, but I felt called to share a word today because I and my community have been facing an immense and unprecedented grief around what's happening in Palestine that is just impossible to hold alone. Um, Some of you know this, but I am German on my mom's side and Turkish on my dad's side, and for most of my life, I have stayed fairly quiet about my SWANA roots. Um, SWANA is an acronym for Southwest Asia and North Africa, which is a less colonial way of saying Middle East. Um, In the past five years, I've become involved in a community of people supporting anti-authoritarian struggles for liberation and direct democracy across the SWANA region. And one of the spaces I found a lot of comfort in recently have been these grief circles, which we've actually been hosting in this building, um, that a few good friend of mine, a few good friends of mine, um, have been hosting, centering uh, Palestinian and other Swana folks, uh, offering an embodied and collective practice to process our grief and our rage together. And it's through that practice that I, I found inspiration for this sermon today. So briefly, to draw from that practice, I want to invite you to tune in for a moment to your spirit, to one another, to your bodies, to your ancestors, and to the physical space all of whom are holding us here and want the best for us. If you need to move or to step out or to get some water, please do so. We're with you. 
Okay, so I'm going to start with some context for the Bible passage we just heard. This story is from a time where the Israelites are figuring out how to organize themselves into an established society that's been liberated from their enslavement in Egypt and has now unified a bunch of smaller tribes into one coherent kingdom. The Israelites ask God to give them a king and Saul was chosen as their leader. Now Samuel, the prophet of this time, whose book we just read from, uh, gives Saul the instructions he received from God to go and wipe out the Amalekites. This is a time when a lot of battles are happening, so the fighting doesn't seem unusual in its context, but what's strange is God's orders to completely eliminate a people. If we look at the Amalekites' origin story in the Bible, we see them first appear when the Israelites were fleeing Egypt. The Amalekites attack the Israelites as they are fleeing, standing in the way of the Israelites' liberation. The Israelites manage to defeat the Amalekites by the grace of God and through the power of Moses' leadership and prayer. And from then on, the Amalekites become an enemy of the Israelites. Now, to be clear, many Jewish scholars today emphasize that the Amalekites are a metaphor for the oppressor because of this origin story rather than a literal people that still exist today. Okay, so generations later, after the Israelites get out of Egypt, Saul is given the task as king to once and for all eliminate the oppressor's ways from their midst and fulfill the promise of liberation and safety to his people. So going back to the passage we read today, did you, notice, did you notice that the first thing Saul does after this battle is to erect a monument in his own honor? And not only that, but he admits he fears his own army so much that he lets them take the best of the sheep and the cattle for themselves, and they take the Amalekites, King Agag, as prisoner to boot. All of this goes against God's orders. God is livid with Saul and immediately dethrones him. The order was to wipe out the ways of the oppressor, king, cattle, and sheep included. And instead, Saul and his army, Saul and his army disobey God. They become arrogant and sick with power, and they embody the very qualities that God says there is no room for in her kingdom. So what does this have to teach us about what we're living through today? As we witness the immense human rights atrocities, the explicit campaign for genocide and full-scale displacement of Palestinians from their homelands right now, how do we cope, process, and respond? Every day we get the news of the staggering number of Palestinians and Israelis who have been displaced, taken prisoner, and killed in the crossfires of this brutal war. We can condemn this violence, and we can pray for peace. We can fight for our tax dollars to be divested from apartheid. We can protest. We can fight anti-Semitism in our communities and honor the memories of all the lives taken in this occupation and war. We can look around us here at our very own colonial occupation of these lands, this mini Shota Makoche, we can resist the forces of this empire from within. And we have in our tradition the teachings, the wisdom 
a roadmap even to show us our way in times like these. So not long after October 7th, I Googled something to the effect of Bible passages about genocide. Um, this is how I deal with <laughs> conflict. Um, <laughs> and First uh, Samuel 15 was at the top of every list I found. I couldn't believe there was a story like this one in the Bible. God really came in and told Samuel it was cool for an army of his people to go and wipe another people out. Much less surprising was how Saul's army ended up behaving after receiving God's blessing to do so, but after sitting with it for a while, I started to understand the lessons this story has to offer. The first of which is, know how powerful you truly are. Know how powerful you truly are. This story in the book of Samuel, like many other stories in the Bible, offers us teachings and instructions and a precedent for how we behave and organize ourselves in the world today. Through Samuel, God is giving the Israelites a pretty surprising pass at the whole thou shalt not kill commandment that she gave to Moses a few generations prior. And even so, Saul and his army are empowered to do what they will uh, with God's orders. There are consequences, of course. Saul is dethroned, and the Amalekites live on through their king's lineage, which leads to another story generations later in which the Amalekites once again manage to threaten the Israelites' survival as a people, but that's another story for another day. We can learn from this story that we human beings are incredibly powerful. We have the ability to receive messages from God herself, and likewise, we have the ability to determine the fate of an entire people. We can honor God as all-powerful, and yet we can decide to disobey her direct orders. Now, the beauty I see in this teaching is that if we are so powerful, if we can inherit intergenerational trauma and perpetuate these cycles of violence, and by the same token, we must also be able to pass on intergenerational healing and to break those cycles. We are not stuck. God is offering us a way out. No one person will make it happen on their own, but as a collective, we have the power to change the course of history. A little over a month ago, a local rabbi, Jessica Rosenberg, briefly disrupted a campaign speech Joe Biden was making in Minneapolis. Jessica interrupted the president and demanded he call for a ceasefire. Biden stumbled over his words as people in the crowd tried to silence Jessica, but what he came up with was something to the effect of, we need a pause in fighting to get the hostages out. Now, as far as I know, this was the first time he'd said anything so publicly and explicitly to that effect, and immediately after, we saw other high-ranking officials making statements using very similar language. What ultimately ended up being a tragically short pause in fighting with completely insufficient inroads for humanitarian aid and an incomplete prisoner exchange was still a testament to the power that we as people have. Rabbi Rosenberg didn't carry this disruption out alone and no single individual could claim credit for how things are playing out in this incredibly complex situation, but I bring this story to you all today to highlight that when we act in accordance with our values and our teachings, 
when we move as a unified body toward justice and liberation for all oppressed people, we do have agency, we do have power, and we can affect real change. The second lesson I wanna to highlight today is this. Don't make a prisoner of your grief. As in, don't shove your grief aside, put it in a little box, stuff it in a closet somewhere in the dark corners of your psyche. Don't do it. Something I keep asking myself is, how is it possible for this genocide to play out while the whole world is watching? So many people have taken to the streets, so many people from so many walks of life are speaking out, demanding an end to the fighting, demanding the hostages and prisoners be set free, demanding the people of Gaza be granted their basic humanity, food, water, a place to lay their head, a place to call home. It can be so disorienting to wake up every morning, to drink clean water, to eat breakfast, to have a quiet moment enjoying a ray of sunshine poking its head through the clouds, when you know there are people on the other side of the ocean being tormented by incessant bombing, displacement, losing family member after family member, friend after friend, under the rubble of this destructive empire. Thankfully, we have these teachings, this deep ancestral wisdom that's been passed down to us to help us understand how to place ourselves in a moment like this one. There are many moments in the Bible where God forgives people for making mistakes, but in our reading from today, God's decision to, de to dethrone Saul is swift and effective immediately. Saul blames the plunder of cattle and sheep on his army, but he takes credit for taking the Amalekites king as his prisoner. Uh, this is a pretty classic move on behalf of a king to prove his greatness and his victory over another people, but God doesn't have any of it. Because the point here isn't to glorify another power-hungry king. And really, what is taking someone as prisoner, as a war trophy, but a way to silo our grief? When we inherit the trauma of being persecuted and threatened, how quickly can we fall to the temptation of taking revenge? How quickly can we resort to using the very same tools of the oppressor to recoup our sense of dignity, our place in the world? Metaphor or not, I'd like to believe God didn't take her orders to wipe out the Amalekites lightly. Her promise was to build the world anew for the Israelites, to grant them freedom from the ways of the oppressor, to deliver them to a promised land of liberation and belonging and healing for, for their people. We'll never get there if we don't break these cycles. If we can't grieve, how will we ever heal? How will we ever dream of treating one another any differently? I know in moments like these, it can be hard to center your own grief because maybe it doesn't hit as close to home for you as it does for others you know, but I implore you to honor your shock and your grief and your outrage as the sacred knowing of your body and your soul that what we're witnessing is deeply, deeply wrong. Because only by moving through and with our grief will we find it at all possible to hope again. Let the deaths of thousands upon thousands of innocent lives taken too soon not be in vain. Do not make a prisoner of your grief. Pray with me for the strength to grieve and to hope 
and to keep fighting. With that, I'd like to close with a poem written by Refat al-Arir, a beloved Palestinian academic, activist, and poet who was killed by an Israeli airstrike in Gaza just a few days ago. If I must die, you must live to tell my story, to sell my things, to buy a piece of cloth and some strings, make it white with a long tail, so that a child somewhere in Gaza, while looking heaven in the eye, awaiting his dad who left in a blaze and bid no one farewell, not even to his flesh, not even to himself, sees the kite, my kite you made, flying up above, and thinks for a moment, an angel is there, bringing back love. If I must die, let it bring hope. Let it be a tale. Thank you. <laughs>